You are listening to National Security Law Today. All right, numerous states are now on lockdown. The president has considered banning travel between states to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Field triage hospitals are being erected in open spaces across the country. Even the Mr. Pillow guy has joined the war effort and delivered a sober message from the Rose Garden. He was not wearing the blue shirt. Week three of COVID quarantine. You have questions about law, history, and context. And we have answers. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security for the American Bar Association. And NSLT will remain here for you throughout the duration of this crisis with legal updates and podcasts. Thanks for listening, everyone. Today, we're going to have a conversation with Harvey Rishikoff, a long-term member, former chair of the committee. Harvey has held basically every national security law job you can name, legal counsel to the deputy director of the FBI, administrative assistant to the chief justice of the Supreme Court, professor at the National Defense University, dean of faculty at the National War College, senior policy advisor to the director of national counterintelligence at ODNI, And now he's cut back to a more relaxed schedule of teaching at two different schools as a professor at Temple Law School and the University of Maryland, where he also serves as director for COVID-19. And wherever I went, uh, people always mentioned the podcast and how much you three were rock stars. And I can't, again, thank you on behalf of National Security and the committee for doing what you do. Harvey, you are so kind. And if anybody uh, knows Harvey, it's difficult to take anything that he says really seriously. So <laughs> I am appreciative and I'm going to take that seriously. Thanks so much. Well, you should know I still take polygraphs. So I'm going <laughs> to have to put this statement under a polygraph. If, I'm going to submit those questions. If you feel it's required. Okay. <laughs> so right. let's jump right in. Yeah, the Harvey, look, the military has been called out to help with this crisis. Uh, kind of predictable, but specifically the Army Corps of Engineers, the U.S. Navy, and various National Guards of the states. So we talked last week about what authorities the president would need to invoke to call up the military, uh, and we touched on things like the Posse Comitatus statute and the intrastate right to travel. Now, Professor Bill Branks gave us a quick overview, but let's talk about this a little bit further with a little more history. Uh, The president stated he was considering limiting travel and Connecticut police are checking travelers from New York and requiring them to self-quarantine upon arrival. Now this harkens back to some cases in the 1990s, uh, largely having to do with public assistance by people who were uh, recently located to new states. Um, And before that uh, time, there were other cases Uh, that also talked about the intrastate right to travel. But what did Justice John Paul Stevens say uh, about this in Signs versus Roe? So as you know, um, this issue is a fundamental issue that um, has usually about three component parts to the analysis. The first is the right of citizens to move freely between states and a right that I think has a great deal of historic longevity, but it doesn't have a pure, say, doctrinal basis, but nonetheless has a deep understanding inside our jurisprudence. And then the second um, aspect of the right is expressed by the first sentence of Article 4, uh, which provides the citizens of one state who is temporarily visiting another state the privileges and immunities 
of a citizen of the latter state. So there's another sort of constitutional foundation. As you know, there's been a lot of historic litigation around the privileges and immunities and what it means. But people have, have seen this right embedded in this element of our constitution. The third is the rights of new arrivals to a state uh, and how they establish the citizens in that state to enjoy the rights and benefits. Those are uh, the cases you're alluding to are ideas that surround your residency requirements. Like for instance, are you moving to a state in order to be able to enjoy that state's rights for getting a divorce? Uh, what people used to go to Nevada for, for a short-term residency, because the divorce laws were a lot easier. So that's, and then what the court has said about that, if there's an administrative solid reason for why the state is requiring that residency requirement, that they will look closely as opposed to whether or not what the state is trying to do is stop individuals moving from, let's say, a high benefit states to a low, from the low benefit states to a high benefit states. So that concept of interest, and I think Professor Banks re referred to this as being in the context of uh, intrastate, though there is a great deal of constitutional right to go and move. Also in the First Amendment, if you remember, we also have the right to assemble for political purposes in order to come and petition on Washington. But in this healthcare crisis context, in which it appears that the state will have a very, and usually the um, standard of review for your constitutional law scholars is a compelling, will it be a compelling state interest in order for the state to restrict that type of movement, which I think was also alluded to by Professor Banks of the famous time manner restriction. That's where we see these, these particular statutes and authorities being exercised by the governors running up to what have been historical constitutional rights of movement. Let's uh, jump into some, some more of the case law. So the Second Circuit discusses curfew specifically, which is not the same as the shelter in place that we have right now, but it's somewhat analogous in Williams v. Township of Greenberg, um, mm -hmm. which is a 2008 case. What did the court say about movement within the state in that case? And I'm asking this because right now there are orders that pro prohibit free movement within a given state and the District of Columbia. Right. So, you know, there, the, again, it's an issue of, as you're saying, for the curfew, what is the compelling state interest that is asserting the underlying power of the political official? And what is the appropriate role for the courts to review those decisions? Again, that usually erases uh, what would be an appropriate due process claim as to why that curfew is being specifically applied against a specific individual for a specific reason? And then what is the appropriate process by which that individual, in their case, would have a right to respond if they, for instance, are detained or incarcerated? Uh, what would be the mechanism and process? Because unlike in other historic moments, our federal courts are still open. Our state courts are still open. Uh, so you would have a right to test and you could see the obvious example you have an emergency, you have a child who all of a sudden uh, starts having trouble breathing, you get into the car, you are violating the curfew, uh, the officer who detains you is not sure what the process is, 
there's an, a misunderstanding, the person may be held, and then they would come forward with their reasons and compelling for why they were willing to risk running the curfew and what the process was to respond to it. Yeah, that's interesting. And when the, the court in that case was looking at something interesting, which had to do with access to a specific building, uh, the court basically said, look, there's a liberty interest um, in this situation. You do have a right. They said part of the right to intrastate travel is the implied right to travel within a state. They said that didn't rise to the level in that case of the right to enter a particular municipal building, um, which is apparently where the guy uh, who brought the original suit lived or, or had previously worked. Um, but they did once again recognize a right to move within the states, but you know, the exception being that compelling uh, government interest to your point. So I guess let's pivot for a second here. The use of the military and domestic law enforcement um, sounds like a noble societal norm. And in fact, we embrace that now. Uh, but Harvey, this Posse Comitatus statute actually has an ugly history rooted in the suppression of voting rights of African Americans uh, and freed slaves in particular after the Civil War and in southern states that had been part of the Confederacy. Um, can we get a quick history of this Posse Comitatus statute right. in some sense from how we ended up accepting this law as a norm? Right. Do you, uh, well, first of all, there had been a long tradition of trying to curtail the role of the military in civil society. I mean, as you know, we have our famous um, here and Article <laughs> 3, which is not always a hot article in law classes, but, you know, no so states, no stager shall in time of peace be quarantined or quartered in any house without the consent of the owner, nor in time of war, but in a manner to be prescribed by law. We had a strong tradition of, and if you look at the Declaration of Independence, this idea of the role of the way the king was using military in the colonies was such that we started with a, a huge uh, sense of in our DNA, an opposition to having the military involved. And as you know, was was raised in where the military gets involved as an interaction is Article One, not Article Two. It's controlled by the Congress uh, in order for the Congress to stipulate when we're going to have that level of the use of military. And then I think you alluded to the Whiskey Rebellion and when we didn't have a strong centralized authority, which stemmed from the Articles of Confederation replaced by the Constitution. And the particular history you're raising is the post-Civil War moment and the post-contested election that we had, I think in 1876 and the Act is 1878. And there was a sort of a deal cut between the southern bosses of the southern states about not wanting to have the military involved in the policing of election processes, which depending on the history, many people felt that those historic states were using variants of intimidation to stop black voters from coming to the rules uh, versus the concept of the southern states arguing that there shouldn't be this quote, northern influence of, United, of military in their particular states. And as a result, the compromise resulted in this concept of there being the posse comitatus that only as a matter of, under the constitution or particular statutes, would you be able to have military involved in this idea of a policing rule. And as was alluded to, we do have a series of exceptions 
And I uh, strongly recommend the Congressional Research Report on Posse Comitatus that I think we'll probably put up with this broadcast for people to look at. It's about 78 pages, which goes into a very thorough analysis of the type of exceptions that we have to Posse Comitatus. Uh, when the police are not in a, uh, the military are not in a direct role of involved with the police. And I will tell you, when I was at the FBI, we were quite involved in uh, the allegations of whether or not there have been violations of the Posse Comitatus. When we had the Branch Davidian case with Mr. Koresh in Waco, Texas, and I was involved in a variety of uh, reviews as to whether or not there have been improper uses of the military in that particular uh, incident. And then I also had another incident when I was at the Bureau in which we had had a military officer esconded to the Bureau. And what the Bureau had done, as we, as we like to say in the Bureau, uh, using the passive tense, mistakes were made. And I had a job description for a military officer that had been copied over from a GS schedule for a GS 15 section, probably level 10. And they had just copied the actual job description over for this poor Colonel. And then uh, they had used it for his functions at the Bureau. And then there had been a, an investigation by the Congress and they had realized that there seemed to be a violation of the Posse Comitatus because the Colonel was in direct supervision of law enforcement officers at the Bureau. And we then uh, had to explain to the Congress that this had been a slight drafting error in which we had not properly exercised the supervisional elements of the colonel over the law enforcement officers. And once we redacted that level of his job description, everyone felt that we complied appropriately with the Posse Comitatus. That's pretty huge. It is an interesting fact, uh, Harvey, that when you look at any cases, recent cases in the criminal uh, arena that are discussing posse comitatus, they do not apply the exclusionary rule of MAP versus Ohio uh, as a result of any violation of posse comitatus. So query whether arrests have to be made by the military, which you know nobody wants, but if there were a reason why that would happen or military equipment had to be used, um, whether or not anybody could successfully challenge that. Um, but right. I think if you know, part of that issue though is there has been use of the military in the drug issue related to borders. Right, that's, right? that's where it comes up, exactly. Yeah. Or, you know, somebody's local breathalyzer machine breaks and they borrow someone, they borrow the militaries. Right, so uh, I, as uh, the exclusionary rule is a very strong anecdote, as you know, to stop the government for performing certain functions. And I think as you're pointing out, we haven't really confronted on mass a situation in which the military being used for that law enforcement function under a presidential direction, uh, which would be triggered perhaps by the Insurrection Act, which was alluded to in the last broadcast, to see what and for the chain of evidence and whether or not there would be constitutional uh, challenges to having used the military that way. And I guess, as you know, depending on the composition of which state you were in, which district court, which court of appeals in the current Supreme Court, it'd be an intriguing see to see where, how that 
issue would currently fall out? This is a really interesting um, discussion, especially in light. I, I recall like the Jade Helm exercises being very controversial during the Obama administration and people started talking about posse comitatus in the, you know, sort of mainstream news. This isn't like a niche issue, really. <laughs> well, as you know, it's dissolved it in most Westerns when the sheriff gets the posse together and <laughs> deputizes a variety of local citizens, usually the barkeep and uh, uh, the, the, the person who runs the cemetery, and they usually go after the bad guys. That is the short for posse comitatus, which is in Latin, is actually getting the town or group together and performing a function that's in a police function. But I think what really what you're raising, which I think is an interesting question, Yvette, is when you look at the actual capability of the law enforcement, both federal and local, we're not talking about an extraordinary resource of individuals. And when you filter in that many of these first line responders are getting sick, so that we have significant members of the New York Police Department going down. And yeah, in New York- Today, Harvey, 20% of, of right. NYPD and 20% of the fire department. But when you start thinking about that, having people to step up then becomes really the body of individuals that are first, as you've talked about, is the National Guard. Uh, and then we have the Army Reserve. But in the end, if we have to start using the significant amounts of our brigades because of either such a depletion of the first responders and or right now Americans are appearing to be reasonably well-mannered uh, in their interactions on the streets. But if it came a time in which that sense of being well-mannered uh, started to break down that that thin veil of civilization. If we started having that, then we would need to be using first, as you guys uh, looked at the National Guard in state capacity. And though many of the states have activated the National Guard under Title 32 status, which allows that to be run by the governor but paid for by the feds. But if it came to it, and you did have governors who were resistant, I think we do have a governor currently in Florida who is not willing to actually issue a, a lockdown order. You might have the feds asserting themselves and then we'd have the use of traditional military involved in policing. And those of you on the contest and, uh, and you guys know, we used to talk about when I was at the Dean of the National War College, the three block war for the Marines, where they would be having a firefight on one block, they'd be acting as police on another block trying to lock down a situation and then they'd be locked worked on another block where they would be helping to build institute institutions of the host country so this idea that historically we've always trained the military for one specific function there was a time in the 2000s in which we the marine corps was thinking of this three block war being used for police functions and i think what you really want there is a clear order and discipline because as you know when this happens one of the major issues is what when i wear my civilian hat at the bureau we call it a shooting policy and when you wear your military hat at the war college it's called the rules of engagement these are very different understandings 
of how force is deployed and employed. And I always explain it to my students quite simply, which is that when you're in the military wearing a uniform and you are in a engagement, uh, unless the adversary lays down their weapons, they are a lawful target. So you can shoot people in the back as a lawful target. But when you are in a law enforcement role and a law enforcement shooting policy, it really is only in self-defense that you are allowed to use lethal force. And clearly when someone is retreating or is not armed or is um, not, a, not in that sort of a situation is are they appropriately used for you to be able to use your lethality. Those are huge differences. And those are culture differences too, Harvey. Those are things that won't be reconciled even during a, you know, 120 day uh, quarantine. Um, so those are, those are very um, excellent and interesting points. Um, I would say, I'm sure some of our, our listeners remember that there were the LA riots. There was full quarantine and there were um, passes that were disseminated by the chief judge permitting people to quote, traverse the streets. Um, I will say this, we have received alerts here in the District of Columbia that the police will be considerably less available for non-serious offenses. Um, and so we're not that far off. And also we're not experiencing the kinds of shortages um, that could result in that uh, level of civil unrest at this time. And you're right, it's uh, currently a sense of duty um, that appears to be holding the fabric of society together. Uh, but let's move on for a minute and let's move away from this to the concept of trials. Nicole? So we've been talking about trials as in courts, but I think actually I wanted to talk about vaccine trials. The president mentioned in his daily briefing on the pandemic that there were vaccine trials underway and there has been a certain amount of controversy over vaccines in the past two decades, largely around now debunked claims that they cause autism. But these vaccines, a possible vaccine for coronavirus, would be absolutely huge in terms of our public health response to this pandemic. Could the federal government or the state governments force vaccines upon people who would not otherwise be willing to get them? And if so, what are the legal standards that would allow states or the federal government to require those vaccines? Well, we have case law on this, as you guys know, uh, the Johnson case that was around the turn of the century, in which um, it, the court held under those circumstances that the state had the duty and responsibility and right for a forced vaccination. But you could easily see part of the issues are one, you could see individuals who, for religious reasons, have decided that they do not want to become vaccinated. And then you have a classic tension of the uh, First Amendment uh, coming smack into conflict with the right of the government under its police powers in order to take steps to protect the general population. And I think in those circumstances where we see the context of what it means not to be inoculated and the consequences for third parties, you would see the First Amendment right of religion bend to the concept of what is required for the general welfare. A second element of this element of the issue also is we are looking at it in the, uh, both the Public Health Act Services Act and uh, steps that have been taken by the Congress under the CARES Act is that an experimental 
procedures, will there be potential liability? So is the liability, the, the case that's the hard case is, if you voluntarily are taking the experimental vaccine or drug and you are voluntarily waiving the, the right to sue and you're giving immunity to the, the, the government, that's one set of cases. But let's, the hard example is, let's say there's an experimental drug, a drug that's not been used and approved by the FDA and that they are then using that drug against people's will, even though there's been no appropriate testing and training of the drug involuntarily, then I could see someone might have a colorable cause of action because of the experimental nature and the lack of the authority uh, by which the state is using its power for inoculation and its power having used a drug that's appropriately been approved by the FDA. Uh, so those are like the different baskets of cases, but I think that we've demonstrated under case law that the state would have the right to do those vaccinations. You know, Harvey, that's interesting because in the, I think there was a time when a lot of the resistance to vaccine was, or the, at least the litigation involved people who were, for example, Christian scientists or um, particular Hasidic sects who really believed this. What I find interesting is that we're now in a time period where the overwhelming majority of people resistant to the measles vaccine, which, you know, resulted in, um, I think, some of the litigation around the case E uh, dot D versus state, uh, which was in the Southern District of New York last year, 2019, had really to do with the fact um, that case involved, I believe, um, Hasidic sect, but there were for the last three years, you know, a, a large body of educated people who had come to believe that the autism uh, that their children um, had acquired came from vaccines and were just uh, based on, you know, pseudoscience and false science were regrettably, you know, became very sort of animated um, by, you know, by these, these studies. So that would not certainly fall within uh, any kind of religious protection whether it would have other protections, I do, I so do you, kind yeah. of wonder. You do raise an interesting question. I practice law, when I, as you pointed out, I seem to have every possible job, but a period of time, I practiced law uh, in Boston. One of my partners was a Christian scientist and he had a child who was ill. And I remember sitting, talking to him and saying, you have to bring the child to the hospital you have to bring it to the doctor to get he was emphatic that he believed in his religion and that he would not do that and i i said okay the issue there is one the unit of analysis is that child it's not a communicable disease the way we have with the COVID 19 so it puts it in a different factual context so the effect is only on that child but it, it still raises you know in the law a fascinating issue of when does the state have the right to intervene in a child-parent um, relationship when the child is clearly being put at health risk, but that the parent is justifying that risk based on a religious conviction. That has always been a very hard area of our jurisprudence. As yes, a indeed, and children can't uh, are not believed to be sentient for purposes of making contracts and the like, um, and so they uh, uh, regrettably, whatever position they might take on their own health care, it really is made by the parents. So yes, well, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. 
Yvette? Also, I think, you know, the thing that is also interesting, aside from the religious angle, the country does have uh, sort of a, a, an ugly history of unethical medical experimentation. If you think about the Tuskegee experiments um, where uh, the government um, purposely infected poor black people with syphilis in order to determine what the effects are. There was no informed consent at this time. And that was not that long ago. Um, and so I, I, you know, I think that aside from religious belief, if you have a strong conviction or distrust in the government, it's interesting that that is not uh, protected in the same way as um, a religious belief is a a deeply held religious belief is as uh, a a deeply held distrust of the government would be. So as you know, we have a strong view of the consent of the governed. Um, And in many, as you know, some of the cases in which you allude to uh, many of the individuals who were the subject of some of these um, experiments were also uh, empl- government employees or members of the military. And uh, we have the Ferez Doctrine, which has always been a barrier to going after the military um, for these uh, issues. But your, your point, which will, is that um, it, when we're in a situation in which the government is given such authority you would like to have a corresponding set of institutions and processes to review the government's actions so that an independent party sees them as being fair, legitimate, and reasonable and responsible under the circumstances. So you would probably want, if you were constructing this type of framework, to have a clear body of doctors and scientists not affiliated with the government uh, reviewing those procedures and actions and saying that they're appropriate given what's going on, uh, which I think raises the question that you guys uh, were thinking about. There's so many of these sort of legal issues and questions that have been raised by the pandemic and emergence response. We are seeing sort of gaps inside the legal framework. And we talked about our committee perhaps thinking about putting together a working group to review the sort of existing statutes and have a bit of a review of what's going on at the state level. If you know, if you look at um, uh, lawfare, they have a list of all of the state statutes and the emergency powers that the governors have. We don't have a uniform set. And I think it'd be very helpful if we started creating what you guys alluded to in the last broadcast, a uniform set a model set of what we thought were the appropriate approaches that should be taken under the statutes and also have an appropriate federal set of tweaks that may have to take place in some of these statutes so we have a much more rational, thoughtful response because I think we all agree this is a horrible pandemic, uh, but there's no doubt that we will have potential equally bad pandemics in the future given the way we are evolving as, um, as a society and how we are evolving in what we're confronting in our close proximity of living the way we do. Completely. And, and I, would, I would hope that, you know, the model the statutes, the model framework that we came up with as a committee um, would account for the fact that there is very reasonable uh, concern about uh, the government and how trustworthy it is, especially considering um, the concerns of, around overclassification 
of um, information that is not favorable to X, Y, or Z policy. And this is not unique to the Trump administration. There's always been criticism of overclassification. It's, it's now more at the forefront, especially in the post-impeachment uh, universe we're in. So I would say that um, if you remember, this is a major issue of Senator Monaghan. So Monaghan, it's been, this goes quite far back in our modern period of the issue of transparency. And particularly when the adversary is not a foreign uh, enemy, but in the medical context where the adversary should be amenable to data statistics and analysis uh, is something where I think we need to be able to have and feel that the federal government, state governments are acting with total honesty and appropriateness and explaining when they don't know what they don't know. But I think Yvette, that's what, that's what we want. That's what we expect from our democracy. Uh, I think, um, I think Harvey, that's great. And I also think we're going to see some interesting litigation. I would encourage our uh, listeners to be alert to the fact that we've had a minister arrested um, because he was holding religious services in violation of state requirements or orders uh, not to form groups over a certain number. Um, and he's going to have some other problems because uh, it's publicly reported that they found a large number of weapons in his home. But I think on the probable cause for the original arrest, it's gonna be very interesting to watch. And we will monitor that for our listeners and we'll make sure that we're tracking what's happening with that and we'll bring you updates. And there, that's not the only case. Uh, there's been a case in Maryland. There was a, an arrest uh, two nights ago on March 29th of an adult who threw uh, what sounds like it was a party for teenagers um, where 60 people came after Governor Hogan had ordered that there could not be assemblies of you know, groups of people more than a certain number outside of family members, clearly a violation of what the governor had ordered. So we will look at this and we'll see what constitutional uh, claims are raised. Uh, and we'll keep you posted about the committee's uh, works on any smart emergency reforms as we develop those in the future. But Harvey, I wanna thank you for coming in today, even if it was virtually, we're glad you were here. Uh, and we want to strongly encourage our listeners to read the cases we've cited, form your own opinions. We would urge you to take a look at the executive orders that are being published. You can locate those at whitehouse.gov. You can also just Google current executive orders, and you will be able to find those that are being issued by uh, the president. Um, we will hyperlink the lawfare resource on what is happening with respect to state orders. And we will talk in the future a little bit more about federalism, which uh, may explain to some people why the president has done things and why there were some things that he clearly expressed an interest in doing and then backed off of uh, for various reasons. Uh, but we'll continue to monitor all of that and we'll bring you these resources as we can. Um, we just wanna remind you too, that we're gonna be back next week with more content to keep you aware and informed. Do not panic over a pandemic know the law and the history because it's very interesting and we uh we hope to see you all very soon please follow the cdc guidance to limit the spread of this disease wash your hands don't hoard hand sanitizer practice social distancing be in touch with your elderly neighbors and relatives to make sure they're getting what they need we're all in this together see you next time on national security law today 
And as always, a disclaimer to say that the attorneys hosting this podcast are here in their individual capacity and not on behalf of any agency or firm. Thank you. Hey, before we let you go, remember to hit that subscribe button on your listening app of choice. We'll talk to you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.